things. Um, Lord, uh, we're told that, that people and your word will last forever. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to see how your word interacts with our lives and your truth overpowers um, uh, the lies that are around us. And Lord, I, as we look at some specific ways to obey this morning, pray, Lord, that you would allow us to see how you are greater than uh, maybe the temptations that we face to live independent from you. Um, how your truth collides with our assumptions and, and allows us to grow and to humble ourselves and live in obedience. Lord, I just pray that you bless this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an uh, article in a Zurich publication that talked about a conductor on a train. That would be the person that goes down through the car checking tickets and says the all aboard and things like that. Different than the engineer. The conductor was checking tickets on a train that was um, to head on its way to Brussels. When he got through a whole car of people, turned around and announced, Everyone, please get out at the next stop. You're all on the wrong train. The passengers looked at each other with amazement. How could this happen? Finally, it turned out the conductor himself was on the wrong train. His presumption led him to believe that he was the only one that was right. I would imagine an arrogant presumption could have led him to finally believe that the train was going in the wrong direction. That's not as the story goes. But we've learned from James chapter 4 that a mark of a maturing follower of Christ... I moved ahead quite a bit. Sorry. Can you take that back to slide 2? Thanks. Thanks, Jay. The mark of a maturing follower of Christ is that they, we live in humble obedience to God. This is what we learn from chapter 2, or chapter 4. In the first 10 verses of chapter 4, you might remember we were introduced to the difference between humble obedience and prideful arrogance. These verses that we looked at helped us to look at our hearts under the microscope of God's grace. We learn that humble obedience flows from a heart that God's grace brings to repentance. The remaining verses of chapter 4 that we'll look at this morning help us to see how arrogant pride displays itself in our being judgmental toward others. And also prideful arrogance leads us to presumptuous decisions with our life. So the remaining verses of James chapter 4, starting with verse 11, read this way. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what, your, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, the big idea from our passage this morning is that in response to God's gracious rule over us, we are to be humbly obedient. Let me define for you first here what I mean by God's rule over us. A person who has been confronted with their sin and God's righteousness and how we do not measure up to his righteous standard and they hear the gospel, they have the opportunity to gain Christ's righteousness by receiving Christ as their Savior as, and gain that righteousness as their own based on his death and his resurrection. Once God is their Savior, rather than their judge, his law becomes a law of love. It becomes a law of liberty. He rightfully rules over us through his, the guiding Holy Spirit. And he molds us more and more into the image of his son who lived a life for us to follow. God's gracious rule means growing in Christ. This includes being convicted about sin and joyfully giving our lives to him more and more. James closes chapter 4 with verse 17 where he states, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Our passage today opens with a statement about speaking evil of other people. It closes with a statement about arrogantly boasting, which James describes as being evil. Verse 17 is a summary statement. Some would see it as being a summary statement for all of the book of James. And others would see it as being a summary statement just for chapter 4. But we're going to be looking at it as simply a summary statement to the verses that we're looking at this morning. We can take the statement of verse 17 to mean that whoever we are, whatever circumstances that we're in, we are called to obey God. Whoever knows the right thing to do, whatever circumstance they're in, it's not an opportunity to rationalize. Okay, well, but in this moment, I guess God would understand. He's saying for anyone who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, that's a, that they're sinning. Our obedience is both in the area of what we know we should not do, what we should not commit, as well as what we know we should do, what we should not omit from our lives. In our verses this morning, we're to see how our lives, our plans, and our words are not our own. With each section, we're confronted with who God is. And the truth is meant to humble us and transform us to obedience. The specific commands that we see this morning regarding our, our speech in our planning. These specific commands are simply applications to the process that we learned about last week. 
We discussed what it means to walk in humble obedience rather than in arrogant rebellion against God. Our first principle this morning is a review. We're looking just reviewing these, these steps, these principles from last week here. And, and we'll do this quickly here. Throughout James's letter, he's told his readers that they should be different from the world around them. This should especially show as they face challenges and opportunities in the trouble and tough circumstances that they were going through. We were reminded that worldly motivations should be guarded against, especially for teachers, as we looked at in James 3, 14 through 17. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He says, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Friendship with the world, as James will talk about later, is friendship with that which is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, he says. And we talked about this last week, as we learned that trials bring out longings to the surface that reveal our hearts. In verse 4 from chapter 4, he says, do, not, do you not know that friendship with this world that he described earlier as being earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Friendship with this world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We discussed the idea that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God doesn't put up with the emotional affairs with the world around us. But this leaves us wondering, how do I change my heart to a place that I'm glorifying God by desiring to glorify God rather than desiring the control that the world deceptively offers to us? So let's look again at this gracious process of change that God offers us as outlined in the first 10 verses of chapter 4. You might recall but I shared the definition of responsibility as being our response to God's ability. The first response that we should make to God's ability is to resist temptation. Literally, this is to take a stand against the temptation of the devil in our lives. We can start the process of change knowing that God has the ability to make Satan flee from us when we resist him. We don't approach this step, though, as, we, as if we're to do this on our own. We must always resist temptation in the strength of God's grace. And it's best to do this un, with the, along with the accountability of a brother or sister in Christ. This leads us to step two of God's gracious process of repentance, and that is drawing near to God with both our hands and our hearts. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So in response to God's ability to span the gap between us and him, we're called to draw near to him. Remember the Old Testament temple worship terms that James is using here. Drawing near to God in repentance involves cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. It involves cleansing our hands to surrender our outward behavior to him, to surrender the fruit of the problem 
to him, but also involves purifying our hearts of our double-mindedness, he says, to deal with the root of the problem. God's grace of repentance deals with the cause of our problems in the first place, our sinful desires, James is saying. This is a, an appropriate part of repentance. James describes the last step in a process of repentance, which sets our sinful desires in their proper place of being offensive to our Savior and King. He tells us to be grieved by the offense of our sin. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. God's ability to bring us to a place of mourning over our sin and our response to his ability is to change our desires to seek after a changed heart. God does not plan for us to return from repentance to fight against the same strength of temptation that we faced. He plans to weaken temptation's grip on us and dealing, by dealing with our desires. All of God's work of repentance is summarized then, if you remember, by the beginning and ending commands of the passage where he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is a summary of the process of repentance that James lays out for us. The process of repentance is, is, is summarized by this term submit. If you remember, this means to align yourselves then again. Join the ranks again under God's command as your commanding officer, as your commander-in-chief, rather than lining yourselves up against him in a prideful state. And this brings us to verses 11 through 17, which I believe, again, point to the application, point to two opportunities to, to apply this process of repentance that James gives them. You know, it's interesting how assumptions and, and judgmentalism kind of work together a lot of times. My dad walked into... Um, my mom and dad's house of, I believe it was a few years ago they like to tell this story and he sees a plate of cantaloupe sitting on the counter and he thinks well this looks nice picks a piece up puts it in his mouth and it's like spits it out my mom comes walking in and he says this cantaloupe is terrible she says what are you doing you're not supposed to eat that what's wrong with you so my mom immediately judges my dad's judgment of, of whether he should be eating this or not. Well, what he didn't know is that my mom was having trouble with fruit flies. And they seemed interested in this particular slice of cantaloupe. So she decided she was going to t dice it up, spray it with bug killer, <laughs> so that obviously the fruit flies would be the only ones interested in this cantaloupe. My dad obviously walks in, makes the assumption this cantaloupe is fine to eat. My mom ends up making the judgment that there's something wrong with my dad, that he would walk in and eat a piece of cantaloupe sitting out on the counter. James brings first these principles of repentance to bear on what we say out of a judgmental attitude. 
in verses 11 through 12, we are, see that we are to be humbly obedient rather than arrogantly judging. It says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Don't judge me is a common statement we hear in our culture today. Pretty soon, if you're, you're labeled a hater, you know, and I don't know where it goes from there. But it's important for us to understand first the type of judging that is being warned against here. Did you know that 20 years ago, the most common verse known in America was the one that was quoted by Franklin Graham in the video, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, in that Son, should not perish, but have everlasting life. I read recently that the most common verse known today among Americans is Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged. People have moved toward a relativism of what's wrong for you is not wrong for me. So don't you judge me. And they latch on to this Matthew 7.1. The fact any confront, in any confronting of people is lumped into this idea of judging these days. Because our culture's fear of judging one another, I think it's important to take a moment here to clarify, as I said, what James is talking about here. Let's just look first at this Matthew 7 passage that is so commonly understood. It says, Judge not that you be not judged, Jesus says. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is saying, don't ever exhort someone that they need... Don't, let me say, Jesus is not saying, don't ever exhort someone that they need to change. Don't ever challenge someone. He's not saying, stay away from confrontation. Jesus is warning against confronting someone without giving attention to the sin that is in our own lives. We're challenged to first focus on living a lifestyle of repentance. Then we will see clearly to help the brother with the speck of sin that is in their eye. Notice he says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, if you will. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, in other words, if anyone is stuck, like, like having stepped into a trap, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, he says, lest you too be tempted. We're challenged in here as well to seek to restore the brother or sister who is caught up in a sin. Notice again the challenge is to the person who's doing the confronting to keep an eye on their own heart. As well, we, we're called to seek to restore the person in a spirit of gentleness. As a part of both Jesus' and Paul's teachings, the person is instructed to warn, uh, to warn the person but remain humble in heart, meaning to guard against their own arrogance. In fact, both Jesus in Matthew 18 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 teach that it is sometimes necessary to have a process of even removing from your fellowship someone who is an unrepentant brother or sister for their sake and also in humility. James later will teach in chapter 5 about the value of lovingly confronting a fellow believer. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. These truths should balance out in our passage so that we read it knowing that we are called to confront, to lovingly and humbly confront sin. So James confronts us with judging in arrogance. Let's allow him to lead us to humble obedience through the same gracious process of repentance here. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law but a judge this is the temptation that we're called to resist the term speak evil against literally James is telling them stop speaking against your brother or your sister in Christ later you see he says or your neighbor this could include destructive verbal attacks gossip behind another person's back false accusations. James combines the idea of speaking evil against with judging their motives. The term for judging here means to make distinctions between one person or another. So we're commanded against speaking about someone in a judgmental way. But we're not commanded against speaking to someone in a non-judgmental way. And so we'll kind of understand, hopefully, what's meant by that. But it's important to note here that there's a difference between what James warns here and what he writes about in chapter 5, about restoring a brother. And along with the teachings of Jesus and Paul that we looked at, the encouragement is to discern that someone needs to be confronted. And it's to lead to talking to them. James warns against an arrogant judging that leads to talking about them. You notice the difference there? James warns against talking about the person. 
in a judgmental way. Jesus and Paul and James later in chapter 5 is encouraging us to talk to the person. What is more earlier, he's describing when talking about a person according to the, to the judgment that we've made about them. Recall here that he references a law, the law that we are to follow. When talking about the danger of becoming judges with evil motives, in James 2, 8, 9, he says, If you really follow the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Later, James would describe us as under the law of liberty. The standard of behavior that we're called to has a safety net of grace that catches us when we fall, when we've received Christ as our Savior and stand in His righteousness. So when we slander or judge someone harshly, we are thinking that we are not responsible to love this person. Maybe because of what they've done. Maybe because of how they've caused us to feel about them. At this point, we've become a judge over the law of love rather than a doer of the law of love. Can you see that? You can tell when you feel like somebody's crossed the line. It's like, okay, I'm not responsible to love this person anymore. And that's what James is pointing out here. That person speaks against the law when they speak against that person. They become a judge of the law. What? The law to love our neighbors as ourselves that he's brought up earlier. James draws us to see what God thinks of our judgmental arrogance. And this encourages us to step in to, and draw near to God, cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that in the process of repentance, that whenever we go through it, it's helpful to draw our minds to, to meditate upon, to seek out in Scripture, who is God in this area that I struggle in? How does who He is should confront, how is it that it should confront my heart and draw me to change? And that's what James is doing here when he says there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy Error, ultimately, when we arrogantly judge others, we compete with God for the place of judge and jury over our brothers and sisters. In our government, it's arranged in a judicial and a legislative and an executive branch with a careful separation and balance of powers. God doesn't work this way. James is saying he is judge and jury. We do not hold either of those places. In a sense, God would respond with, take off my robe and give me back my gavel. You are not in a place to decide this person is not worthy of love. God has always been the giver, given the place of judge. 
Psalm 75 tells us, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Even Christ was submitted to the Father's will in making judgments. He says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But somehow we end up thinking we're in a higher position than, than Jesus Christ by deciding, okay, this person's crossed the line. I'm done with them. God does not share his role of setting the standard of how we should live. He no less gives us the privilege of deciding who we should be loving toward. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how we're tempted to treat others in a way that we hope we won't be treated by God? To not give others the grace that we've been given. You know, it, it pops up so simply. Um, I, I made this statement this past week, you know, angrily. We have at least three pairs of scissors in this house. Not one of them is where it should be. The next day I found a pair in my desk drawer. We, we have this tendency that we stop giving others the grace that we've been given. The fact is that we look for opportunities to think that we're not obligated to love as God loves. We look for opportunities to think someone who thinks differently than we do is not worthy of care or compassion. Or, or we look for the opportunities to think that those who disappoint us need to feel our disapproval in order to learn. Or to act as if a fellow believer is not living under the same mercy of God that we are under. Or that he is not also at work in them with the same safety net of grace that we enjoy. James shakes us to realize that our problem of slander and judging others' hearts is between us and God and calls us to repent. He says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the same type of step that generally and principally he recommends us to come to a place of realizing my laughter, my thoughts about this person, my, my anger toward this, toward this person should bring me to mourn and recognize that I am not fully embracing God's grace as it applies to this person. So what does it look like? I, I think that this particular warning against spreading our judgmental ideas to other people can apply in as many different ways as the different relationships that we're in. At work, at home, with extended family, with friends, with somebody we just see on TV. When we're assuming about a person's motives... We're in dangerous territory. It usually sounds like talking to someone else. Well, you know, I know why he said that. I know why he did what he did. You know what? I'm, I bet this is what he was thinking. I bet this is what he wants. 
This is what it's about. And this definitely becomes slander when we spread those assumptions to other people. I remember Johnny Miller, the president of CIU, said this once, and I don't know if I've shared this before, but he said, when you are assuming about people's motives, the only thing that you learn is the depravity of your own heart. When you're assuming about people's motives, the only thing that we learn is the depravity of our own hearts. I want to challenge you to notice how much you might talk about other people. I'm challenged by this passage. Notice how much you assume about what is in their hearts. Do you share those assumptions with other people and slander them? Notice how often you talk about a person's sin rather than talking, about, talking to the person about their sin. Some are thinking, what do you mean talk to them about their sin? How would I even start? Here's a real simple principle to remember. Let me recommend that you start by asking questions. Always start by asking questions. I've been noticing this or this. I don't want to assume. But is, is it this that's going on? Are you struggling in this way? Can I speak into your life as a friend? If your answer is no, okay. But to start by asking questions makes it very different. But moving on here. Due to these readers' tough economic and social pressures, the readers of James's letter would have been tempted, well, we've already seen, that they were tempted to show favoritism to the rich. They were tempted to seek out positions of teacher without godly control of their words. They were tempted to work from a worldly wisdom in their positions of influence. It would have been tempted for them to think an answer was just to have the right business plan. Then they would they'd be longing for the day they would not be so financially needy they would have been looking for the right opportunities to secure their financial future. And into this, James writes, verses 13 through 17. We're not going to spend as much time on this as we have on the previous verses here. But we see here that we are to be humbly obedient rather than arrogantly planning. And again, I see this as a point of application of these principles of repentance that James has laid out already in chapter 4. But James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, do, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James is describing the behavior of a merchant who would travel to another town and maybe buy goods there and then bring them back to his home and sell them 
in his homeland or maybe he would take goods from his homeland and go to another town where they were in demand and he would sell them there and he would go with a plan he would be plotting this out you know for quite some time prior to this it would have been practiced for men who, who would return home from a successful venture in this way and they would gain respect and envy in the community such men would easily boast in the soundness or the gutsiness of their plan and how it paid off. The point that James is getting at does not have to do with some sort of there, there being a danger in planning or that we, we, we shouldn't make plans. It's the person's arrogance that's an affront to God. He says here that this is the temptation that we should resist. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, he says. All such boasting is evil, he declares. Notice that James describes the person as boasting in his arrogance. This literally means the person is boasting in how arrogant he's able to be. Meaning, he's saying, look at how arrogant I can be. And I've got it all to back it up. That's what he means when he says, you're boasting in your arrogance. You're not just arrogant, you're boasting about how arrogant you can be. Kind of like, you know what? I can put my money where my mouth is. So I can talk as much as I want. The sin here is arrogant presumption feeling secure enough to leave God out of one's calculations or leave God out of attributing their success to him. It's a glaring example of practical atheism in which a person lives as if God does not exist. I read a story once about a man who brought his boss home from work for dinner and his boss was kind of sitting there boasting about the company and all these decisions he'd made and plans for the future and all these things and, and the boy's son just kind of sat there staring at him and as he goes on he, the boss kind of looks over at the son and says so what do you think of all this you think you'd like to be in my line of work one day and the, man says, the little boy says well I just have one question he says my dad always describes you as being a self-made man the boss kind of sticks his chest out a little bit and he says, yeah, that's right. The boy says, I just wonder, why did you make yourself like that? <laughs> he could pick up on the arrogance of this man. A.J. Motyer writes, James is not trying to banish planning from our lives, but only to sort that sort of self-sufficient, self-important planning that keeps God for Sunday and looks on Monday to Saturday as mine. Proverbs 27.1 tells us, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring. As with this proverb, we're brought to understand the situation first by realizing how fleeting life is. This mortal truth should lead us to draw near to God in the process of repentance. 
He says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This term mist in the Greek is actually where we get our term atmosphere from. You're just blowing wind. You're just blowing a cloud. The frailty and fleetingness of our physical life is described in the Bible as a shadow, a breath. You ever see that on a cold day? You see it for a moment, and then it's gone. A cloud, a wildflower that fades away. You know, there have been 11 deaths in Montgomery County due to overdose this year. I'm sure that each one of these young people never thought that they would be doing drugs for the rest of their life. They just didn't realize how short their life was going to be. A few weeks ago, a young man in Crawfordsville was carelessly pulling a shotgun out of his truck. Within moments, he was dead. Life is fleetingly short, we're reminded of. And it's always shorter than we expect it to be. So how do we respond in obedience? What does James lay out for us here? He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Notice that? If the Lord wills, we will live. And do this or that. This is not about simply adding, if the Lord wills and the creek doesn't rise. Or, sorry, and the creek don't rise. To all of our statements. I think we usually think of this term, and I don't know if this is significant for you, but we usually think in this term of Lord willing. Kind of put the emphasis on willing. But actually the word order emphasizes if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As opposed to my plan is. But he's saying, no, if the Lord, the master, the king wills. We will live and do this or that. In other words, to say, I'm planning this, but I will see if it gets final approval from him. I don't know if any of you guys that work in an office or a factory would ever think of coming in one day and pulling out some plans you kind of drawn up at home, show your co-worker, oh, you know what, I've got some big ideas for this place. See over here, I'm planning on put, adding about 20,000 square feet and um, just expanding the whole operation. Your coworker would look at you and be like, who do you think you are? What do you you're, you're just Joe coworker like me. Our obedient response has to do with our awareness and comfort with God's control that he's the boss. He's in charge. You know, um, to deal with car problems, to deal with things that go out in your home or on your farm, and to say, Lord, it's all your money. This belongs to you. This home belongs to you. My time belongs to you. I guess this is where you want it to go. Maybe you want me to work with one car here. You know, Lord, this is yours. What do you want done with it? That's 
That's the attitude. It's not as much what do we say. Do, we, do I say, well, Lord willing, as much as am I thinking, Lord, if you will, I will live today. I will live tomorrow by your will, by your grace. We need to seek God's approval with purchases, with the monthly bills that we commit to. You know, any monthly bill, we're signing a contract to it. We're taking the Lord's resources and we're saying, okay, Lord, I, this is where I think you want it to go on a monthly basis. James Dobson has warned that if the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy. And he says that's just as bad. We need to consider prayerfully, young people, how many sports we're involved in. Folks, how many ministries we're involved with. It's the Lord's time. Our families are the Lord's. Our time is the Lord's. Our finances are the Lord's. The question is whether we recognize it or not. Just closes with this um, quote here I read. It says, That God would have a plan for each of our lives is an obvious truth. He is a God of wisdom and knows what ought to happen and when it should occur. And as a God of love, he must desire the very best for his children. Too many Christians look at the will of God as a bitter medicine they must take instead of seeing it as the gracious evidence of the love of God in their lives. That he would graciously interact with his ability and with his love in our daily lives. I'll have the worship team come up and let's just close in prayer. Or um, maybe slander from a judgmental attitude isn't, isn't a problem. Maybe, maybe presumptuously planning isn't a problem. Um, but Lord, I pray that you would still allow us to run obedience to your commands, obedience to your conviction through this idea that, that being confronted with who you are, being confronted with who we are empowers us for repentance. And then we have an opportunity to follow you, desiring you, desiring more of you, desiring more of your reign in our lives. Lord, I pray that you bring to our mind your truth is maybe if we struggle in these very areas this week, Lord. Help us to remember, Lord, that we walk in your grace when we know Christ is your Savior. We walk in your protection. You want us to offer that, extend that to other people. You want us to live under that as we plan and move. Thank you, Lord God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.